0: swordplay, a billionaire promised to pay off student loans for all Morehouse College graduates during his commencement speech this past weekend. And
1: that man's name is Michael Gary Scott. Nick, are you one of
0: Scott's tots? <laughs> Obviously an office reference. I didn't know you watched The Office, Alex. Never seen an episode. Okay, this is swordplay. <laughs> And we are your hosts. I am uh, Nick Perez, Preaching Minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of
1: Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota.
0: On this episode of Swordplay, Ruth,
1: Chapter 2. Chapter 2, Nick. And uh, let that be a reminder to our listeners to go back and read the book of Ruth. Very short, only four chapters. We've already covered Chapter 1. You can check the archives for that. What do we have today, Nick? Chapter 2.
0: A lot of good stuff here. Um, Boaz, uh, verse 1, right? we'll start in verse 1 here. Yeah, enter Boaz. Nick, will you tell us a little bit
1: about Boaz? Who is he?
0: Well, it's interesting. The name Boaz itself could mean strong or strength, but the meaning of the name is debatable and is somewhat obscure. What we do know is that Boaz is a relative of Naomi's husband of the clan of Elimelech, In chapter 2, verse 20, we'll see that Boaz is called a close relative. Three times throughout the book, he's called a kinsman redeemer. 3, verse 20, excuse me, 2, verse 20, 3, verse 9, and also verse 12 of chapter 3. Kinsman redeemer. Hmm. That's right. And so this term, kinsman redeemer, is a technical legal term, and it is related specifically to to Israelite family law. Boaz, as the redeemer, was responsible for ensuring that the parcel of land in Bethlehem, which Elimelech had sold during the famine, would stay in the family, and that the family name continued after the death of all the males, uh, with no male heir to carry on the name. And so this function is uh, prescribed in the law, Leviticus chapter 25, verses 25 through 30, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. Hmm. And we're actually going to address this more directly in a few minutes when we get later into the chapter. Suffice it to say, Boaz is a worthy man. That's uh, how how he's talked about here, what he's actually described as, is a worthy man. He is a model Israelite. He is a man of some wealth um, and possibly a valiant warrior because of the way that word Worthy, that that phrase, yeah, that phrase, worthy man, is used over in Judges chapter 6 and verse 12. Um, That's how Gideon is described. So uh, the phrase can be somewhat ambiguous. Um, The intent seems to be, though, to emphasize Boaz is a man of noble character. So uh, that's a bit about Boaz. Yeah, I think uh, that was a good
1: summary. You've well upholstered that subject to take <laughs> so, a phraseology from my
0: Nick dictionary. <laughs> that's right. They don't call me the Mexican lexicon for nothing. <laughs> <That's> right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verses 2 and 3, also verse 7, talks about the gleaning practices here that Ruth is to be engaged in. And so she comes after the reapers. Alex, talk a minute here about why does Ruth glean the grain after the reapers? Yeah,
1: well, the law—the uh, law of Moses—provided for the poor. Excuse me, <clears throat> the poor being orphans, widows, foreigners, and so they were allowed to skim the leftovers. So the reapers would go through the field, and if they had missed something or if they had dropped something, the poor—the poor—would come behind and, and pick up what was left over. Now, uh, I—I'd wondered why does Ruth ask permission if the law allows her to glean? Hmm. Uh, we get that little tidbit from verse 7 it's possible that Ruth was being polite maybe she didn't want to seem too presumptuous Uh, however it's also possible that Ruth did not know the law I mean she's a foreigner she just arrived on the scene Um, even if she did know the law I can see why she would feel intimidated to flex her legal right I mean what right does she have to speak up she's a foreigner she's a woman this is the time of the judges and so even with that background people were not exactly strict uh, adherents to the law of Moses during the time of judges. They did what was right in their own eyes. Um, They probably didn't even have a thorough knowledge of every single law. So maybe that just wasn't to be expected. But that's the scene that we have here. She comes in, she reaps behind the reapers, and uh, she asks permission to do so. Interesting, Nick, in the Septuagint, it says that she worked from morning until evening with no break. But in the Masoretic text, which is probably what everybody's, everybody's reading, is that uh, it has her sitting in the house for a little while, taking a little break. And so I guess the Septuagint gave her a, uh, an even stronger work ethic.
0: What are your thoughts, Nick? <laughs> yeah, No, you're, you're right. The law did make provision for gleaning to be done after the initial pass of the harvesters. <clears throat> uh, also, corners of your field were supposed to be left unharvested for the poor and the sojourner. Leviticus 19, verse 9, also 23, verse 22, uh, talk about that. So, yeah, gleaners follow the reapers. That was uh, the way things were done. And so Ruth, uh, she would have gone in after the reapers. Right. So uh, let's move forward here a little bit. Verses 9, also verse 15. Boaz has some uh, instructions for his servants, and he commands them that Ruth is not to be touched. And so, Alex, why would Boaz have to command his servants not to touch Ruth? Was was Ruth in some kind of danger? You know, Nick, I think
1: possibly she was in danger. The phrase "touch her" uh, was sometimes used as a sexual euphemism. So you look at Genesis chapter twenty, verse six, where Pharaoh um, has Sarah, and uh, God says, "I did not allow you to touch her." Uh, Proverbs chapter six, verse twenty-nine. Um, talks about committing adultery and it refers to it as touching a woman so that phrase does have some of that connotation too there that could be what we're seeing here boaz likely here he has hired temporary servants that would have been common for the harvest season you bring in these hired hands for the day give them a day's wage and they work out in the field for you um boaz likely doesn't know the exact moral character of each man, and so thus he just he issues a general warning here: don't touch her. Period. It seems that uh, having Ruth go out behind the maid servants as well was another measure of protection that Boaz was offering to her. Uh, there would be strength in numbers if she was with the other women. There would be less opportunity for any man who might be planning something evil to have his way by keeping the men and the women separate. I imagine that as a foreigner she would be even more vulnerable to um, these kinds of crimes. You know, in the law, Deuteronomy chapter 22, uh, Exodus chapter 22, there are laws about sexual assault on women and about rape. But it's unclear if a foreigner would uh, find protection under those laws or if those laws were meant for Israelites only. So maybe a raped foreigner would not find much help at that time, uh, especially Ruth, Because she has no family there, right? She has no father there to speak on her behalf. Uh, No brother. She's just her. She's a foreigner. She's a widow. And she's got one friend, another widow. Uh, She's not a virgin. She's not engaged. She's not married. And so that's what those laws in Deuteronomy and Exodus do. They protect the the virgin or the engaged or the married. You know, Nick, it kind of reminds me today of the most vulnerable women in the United States for sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. Minorities and immigrants.
0: What do you think, Nick? No, I think I think that's uh, a a good connection to make. You know, um, the spotlight on uh, sexual harassment and uh, sex trafficking, things like that. It's it's the, the spotlight's very bright on those things these days. The Me Too movement, hashtag Me Too, hashtag Church Too movement, and so the thing we. Should keep in mind though is those those things are not new. The threat of a woman being taken of taken advantage of by a man is not new, uh, and I think that's what's in back of Boaz's instructions, which are quite strict here. When you look uh, look at them closely, there's uh, you are to do. He's telling his servants you are to do nothing which would cause Ruth to even blush or be embarrassed. You're not supposed to do anything uh, even closer. So that would eliminate all the, you know, kind of locker room talk type whatever stuff that <laughs> the guys... The whistles in- from the construction workers. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but you know, the thing is, again, it's not new. The battle of the sexes has been raging ever since the fall when Adam blamed Eve and by extension God for his sin. So... You're right. A foreign widow in Israel, especially during the times of the judges when people are just doing whatever they felt was right, it was definitely, it definitely had the potential for Ruth to become a victim in that society. And so Boaz, noble man that he is, worthy man that he is, he's looking out for her. Yeah, that's right.
1: Now, when Ruth receives this favor from Boaz, this grace, her reaction was surprise because she says i'm a foreigner why would you treat me so kindly nick does does ruth's reaction show her view of foreigners like that's what she expects based on her own background in moab or does it show her expectation of what the israelites would do and her own presupposition of their view of foreigners what do you think
0: uh, it, it could be a bit of both. I'm going to lean probably toward the uh, probably toward the former. Okay. She was probably expecting the opposite reaction, since she is, by her own admission, a foreigner. So she was probably... And, and there may have been a reputation in those days for what to expect from Israel and... Um, or from a Moabitess, right? Uh, right. Yeah, that's true also. So Boaz... He's a gracious man. He shows grace, favor uh, to this stranger. And uh, that hospitable nature is a, a noble quality. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Well, uh, we mentioned last
1: week that Israelites, they are, according to the law, supposed to have a favorable view towards foreigners since they once were foreigners themselves in the land of Egypt, and because Yahweh loves the foreigner, shows his love by providing food and clothing for them. That's Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18 through 19. But I think Ruth is uh, both expressing her view, you know, one and one that she expected others to have as well. Israel often fell short of the ideal, especially during the times of the judges. It may be that Boaz is being presented here in the story then as doing from the heart what the law required so he is exemplifying this idea of living by faith if this is the kind of man that Boaz appears to be then it follows that this righteous man would not marry a moabite woman aha unless it was acceptable to god so bringing some of that purpose of the letter back into the narrative to show how would this accomplish the purpose of the book. What do you think, Nick?
0: That's That's good connections.
1: Well, Nick, are Ruth's good deeds counted as a work of faith in God's eyes? Are works then also rewarded today for the Christian? This is back of verse 12 from Boaz's statement. What do you think?
0: Yeah, Yahweh repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by Yahweh, God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge the principle that God repays people according to their works is prevalent throughout the Bible and so much so by the way that I've actually run across uh, just in my own research papers um, that uh, scholarly papers that guys have written because of the tension between salvation by grace through faith and Uh, the aspect of judgment according to our works. And so they try to square that up and all that. Listen, whether it's the evildoer for his wickedness or the righteous for his good works, there was an understanding that Yahweh rewards or repays according to one's works. And even Jesus seems to pick this up in his uh, Sermon on the Mount, I believe, when he talks about God rewarding almsgiving and fasting, Matthew chapter 6, verse 4, also verse 18, uh, that God rewards you uh, for your secret works. You're not supposed to go around flaunting it for everyone to see, but God sees in secret and he rewards those who participate in giving to the needy and also fasting. And since we still give to the needy and fast today, perhaps more of the former than the latter, God still rewards good works today, I am persuaded. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think um that's
1: true and the theme I want to bring back into this question as well uh continues and that theme has to show Boaz and Ruth being righteous in order to um justify their their future marriage that's being foreshadowed, you know, already in chapter 2. Boaz acknowledges early on that Ruth's dedication to Naomi is worthy of a reward from Yahweh. And perhaps this idea, it's you know echoing things that he would have known about his ancestors, like Yahweh's promise to Abraham that God would bless those who bless Abraham, that's Genesis 12, verse 3. Or that God would bless the nation that blesses Israel, that's Numbers 24, verse 9. Perhaps we, as the readers, are supposed to see Boaz's future marriage to Ruth as the reward that Yahweh will give to her, and that would validate the lineage that follows from their marriage. So for the Christian today, though, um, I think you know you're right, there is this idea of the gift and the reward. We've been mm-hmm. gifted with salvation through faith in Christ but we are rewarded for the work that we do for Christ. And we've talked somewhat about that in previous podcasts as well, so you can search the archives. Well, Nick, does being under the wings of Yahweh, this is part of Boaz's statement again in verse 12, does that statement imply some sort of accepted conversion or covenant
0: relationship that uh, Ruth has with Yahweh? So the big word for what Boaz is doing here is zoomorphism, uh, attributing animal qualities in comparison to God's nature. Uh, In this case, it's the tender picture of a hen gathering her chicks under her wing. It's a picture, by the way, which is common in poetic literature. See Psalm 91 uh, for an example of this, as well as... Uh, a saying of Jesus, he, has, uh, he says this of himself with regard to Jerusalem in Matthew twenty I've longed to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. And so what's fascinating about this phrase uh, is that the, this figure, specifically of the wing and taking shelter under the wing, is used exclusively for Israel elsewhere in scripture. Uh, See Deuteronomy 32 verse 11, for example, or Isaiah 31 verse 5 for another example. So because of that, because it's used almost exclusively for Israel, I'm inclined to see some covenantal aspects here connected with this phrase of being gathered under the wing, taking shelter, refuge under the wing of Yahweh. Yeah. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah, I
1: agree. Uh, This type of language coming from Boaz clearly illustrates, at the very least, his own view and acceptance of Ruth and his belief of Yahweh's acceptance of her as well. I mean, why would he say that she could find shelter under his wing, Yahweh's wing, if he didn't also believe that she was pleasing and acceptable before Yahweh? So the question is, Nick, will the story as it continues to develop and what we see will follow, will the story be enough for Ruth to be accepted in the eyes of their posterity? Hmm. Nick, is there any significance in verse 14 to Boaz joining
0: his workers at mealtime? Yeah, at the mealtime signals that the morning shift is over. Uh, One thing you mentioned earlier uh, about the Septuagint is they... They don't give her. They don't give Ruth a break, uh, but she does get to eat here um, in the Septuagint. So that's that's an interesting little little feature there. That you know the differences between the Greek and the Hebrew and all that. But sure. so the morning shift is over. That Boaz eats with his workers is yet another testament to the kind of man that he is. I'm persuaded. Uh, this particular meal is more than just refreshment before. The afternoon shift begins. Boaz shows his compassion is on display here. And it, it it continues not just with how he treats Ruth in the morning, but into lunch as he invites Ruth to join in the meal. An ancient Near Eastern culture saw the table as an opportunity for hospitality and for fellowship. And so Boaz is essentially communicating to his f- fellow Israelites that he's in fellowship with this foreign woman. Yeah. And so, yet again, Boaz's generosity knows no bounds. Uh, what say you, Alex?
1: Yeah, I definitely uh, agree. It's good good thoughts there. I was noticing how no one speaks up to rebuke Boaz, right? They all witnessed, they all acknowledged his treatment of Ruth, and apparently saw nothing worthy of disrepute. Boaz will tell the servants uh, right after that. To let Ruth glean from among the sheaves now, not just the leftovers behind the reapers, but among from the good stuff. And he warns them, do not insult her. Do not harass her. And that seems to be more associated not with his anticipation of their disapproval, uh, but more associated with making sure that they understood Ruth has special permission here. Hmm. She's not breaking any rules. She's not stepping out of bounds. So again, there is this overwhelming acceptance from a righteous man of fellowship with this righteous Moabite woman and a view towards Yahweh also seeing her as righteous and acceptable.
0: Uh, So let's move forward here to verses 17 and 18, where we get an accounting of just how much Ruth has gleaned, my English standard says, it was an ephah of barley. That's right. Um, Alex, what's, what's significant about this uh, measure of barley here? Well, from what I could find in different commentaries,
1: an ephah or a measure of barley was about five gallons or about 30 pounds of barley wow. grain. So Oof. that's a lot for one day's work. This would be enough for Ruth and Naomi to eat off of for weeks to come. And Ruth shows up, and she gives it to Naomi. This is a testament both of her hard work, because of how much she was able to gather, uh, but also of her devotion to Naomi. She says, here it is, look what I've found for us. I'm giving it to you. When I was reading through Josephus' account of this story, Josephus records that Naomi also had some food that she was saving to give to Ruth as she comes home from a hard day's work. Where did Naomi get this food? Well, Josephus says that Naomi, in the meantime, was, was given food by her neighbors. And so I like the picture that Josephus's account uh, has because it it shows a reciprocation of both thoughtfulness and love between not only Naomi and Ruth as they bring each other food, but also between them and the surrounding community. You have this idea of, neighbors actually loving each other as they love themselves. And so for being during the period of judges, there are, some, there are some highlights here where people are doing what's right. They're living the law by faith. What do you think, Nick?
0: Uh, I found <clears throat> similar information as you did. Um, uh, 5.8 gallons is what I found, 22 liters for that ephah um, of barley grain. Leaders, this is America, son. Yeah, for our uh, for our folks <laughs> listening abroad, um, <laughs> give you an idea of how much she gathered there. Uh, the new English translation reads thirty uh, pounds is what Ruth took home to Naomi. So yeah, same same thing that you found there. Um, yeah, and by the way, it seems Naomi recognized it immediately. She recognized, wow, we you got a, you brought home a lot here you know, for a single day of work. And also we see Ruth, she shares the leftovers from her lunch. It seems to be, you know, gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So definitely uh, the things that you were talking about there, the sharing aspect, the hospitality, and then um, if that is true about the, what Josephus records, then also the, the hospitality and community aspect of this as well. Verse 20. Uh, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, "May he be blessed by Yahweh, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead." Is what uh, that's how my uh, English standard reads in the first part of that verse. So let's talk a minute here about uh, Alex. How has God not withheld His kindness from the dead?
1: Yeah, an interesting phrase. In fact, I think there might just be some some things getting lost in translation here. Uh, The Septuagint words it in a way that has Boaz not withdrawing his kindness from the living or the dead. Mm -hmm. And so that tension that we saw in chapter one between Naomi and, uh, and Yahweh and the statements that she makes about Yahweh's hand being against her and all of these calamities and her being left empty and bitter, call her Mara. By the way, nobody actually calls her Mara in the story. Right, right. <laughs> so, she remains Naomi. Yeah. Right. She uh, The story has yet to give a full resolution of those statements, of that tension that you feel for Naomi. And this statement doesn't resolve anything. What it does is it shows that Naomi has this now high view of Boaz. Here we have a glimmer of hope. Boaz has not withdrawn his kindness from the living or the dead Uh, it's like the future generations who will read this story they will have to accept the marriage of Boaz and Ruth in order to believe in Yahweh's divine reversal of Naomi's misfortune those two things are going to go hand in hand so did Yahweh fill Naomi back up did he reverse her fortune if you say yes then you have to at the same time, except that Boaz and Ruth have a legitimate marriage, righteous and acceptable in the sight of God, because that's the means through which God will work to accomplish His reversal. What do you think, Nick?
0: I think you're uh, right on the money here, Alex, with how this uh, how this verse, the first part of it, gets uh, translated here, because the my English Standard Version does translate that phrase as referring to Yahweh's. Steadfast love. Right. However, the Hebrew indicates that it's actually Boaz's kindness, because of his kindness, that he is to receive a blessing. Um, And so what we see here is by taking care of Ruth and Naomi, Boaz is showing... Uh, steadfast love to the living, these two widows, but also to the dead, Elimelech, Malon, Chilion, and all that. Right, right. Uh, so and I think that's probably more accurate in keeping with the overall tone of Naomi in the book of Ruth. Right. She's had this crisis of faith, and um, the, the question that's left, by the end of the book even, about Naomi is, does she find a way back? And there's, there's no real, I mean, she gets full but there's no real resolution from the lips of Naomi about uh her own status when it comes to her faith so All right very interesting character study here
1: well nick we've come full circle to what you hinted at at the beginning of this episode yeah And it's time to talk more about this kinsman-redeemer aspect. You know, some translations might not say kinsman-redeemer. It might just say our closest relative or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And yet we have um, in the Hebrew this word goel, and it means kinsman-redeemer. It's, like you said, this legal term. What does it mean, though, more fully? Give us more information here, Nick. How is Boaz,
0: what is he to do as a kinsman-redeemer? We see this pop up in verse 20. Right. So, and that's the end of verse 20 here. The man is a close relative of ours. One of our redeemers is how my English Standard version uh, puts this. So, uh, you're right. Not every translation has that kinsman-redeemer aspect. So, Naomi, she, this is what she calls him. And that redeemer, kinsman-redeemer, is a legal term. It refers to the family law practice of liberate marriage. And this is prescribed in the law, Leviticus 25, verses 25 through 30, Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, as I mentioned earlier. And it referred to the buying back of land sold during impoverished circumstances. The Leviticus 25 passage talks about it. It also referred to the duty of a brother to raise up heirs with the widow of his deceased brother to continue the family name. The Deuteronomy 25 passage talks about this. So one writer talks about this as the book of Ruth extends his duties to provide an heir for a male relative who has died childless. It seems that over time what has happened is the Leverate Law grew in the scope of who could be a kinsman redeemer. Right. In Ruth's case, since there is no brother-in-law to perform the duty of raising up a male heir, a distant relative like Boaz could fill the void and perform the duty of a husband's brother. One one vital part of the Leveret Law was if the brother-in-law refused to perform the duty In those cases, what would happen is the man would be summoned by the elders of the city and make a public pronouncement that he refuses to perform the duty of raising up uh, descendants for his brother, a male heir through his brother's widow. What would happen then is the widow would take her brother-in-law's sandal from his foot and spit in his face, and then from that day forward... That man's house would be called the unsandaled family. Oh, right. <laughs> and it so it's assumed that that sh, should Boaz refuse to fulfill his duty, that would be his fate. Is that will that happen? Is that what's going to happen to Boaz? Well, we got to wait a little bit to find out. But that's that's the assumption here. That's true. Uh, it for a straightforward reading of those texts. Uh, right,
1: Alex. What what do you think? Well, I think it is interesting that the law came to be applied in such a broad manner like you mentioned. You know, Deuteronomy 25 has it's the deceased uh man's brother who is to uh, carry out the Leverite marriage, but like you said by the time Ruth comes along, this is being applied in a much broader manner. Nick, was this then sound exegesis? Man, that's that's the that's the $64,000 question, right? That's right. Well, here's the thing. It's important to remember that the law was not written in order to cover every foreseeable circumstance i mean for example deuteronomy 19 gives a hypothetical scenario for an unintentional murder Uh, someone's out with his buddy in the woods chopping wood and uh, the axe literally flies off the handle and kills his buddy was it intentional it goes through all these things did he hate that man ahead of time And he says, if it's not, then he can find safety in a city of refuge. He's not guilty. Now, does that mean all other scenarios of an unintentional death don't count? Well, of course not. Um, The elders, the judges, the priests, the prophets, the tribal leaders, the officers, all of them had to make judgments based off of their understanding of the law and the spirit of the law, and God was okay with that. the spirit of the law was that people's names in Israel should not be blotted out forever that's not right and so applying the kinsman redeemer law more broadly in order to accomplish uh, the end of preserving uh, names in the tribes of Israel through history that is sound exegesis that is sound hermeneutics
0: well Alex let me just say I don't need no extra Jesus. I just need one Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean that that's but it's such a vital thing, right? The, there's the letter of the law, but then just as you mentioned there's the spirit of the law. Right. That that carries the day here. And and everybody's okay with that. Yes. We'll we'll, we'll see that they all walk away and they're Yeah. Yeah. Just imagine how
1: how big the the law would have to be if it was going to cover every single scenario. It it would grow by the day. It it would be be impossible. You can't live that way. God didn't write it that way. He didn't intend us to do it that way. This is why Jesus can come along in the New Testament and say, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hangs on these two. There's definitely a priority of order there, but still, in these two things, that's the spirit of the law. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Nick, what did Naomi mean in verse twenty-two when she says, "Yeah, don't go to another field; stick with Boaz's field, because you might be in danger of someone falling upon you." Was
0: Naomi, uh, what she, what was she meaning there, Nick, verse twenty-two? Yeah, it seems to me she's reiterating, albeit in different words, uh, what Boaz had told her early, had told Ruth earlier in the day, what we saw back in verses eight and nine. And so, as I mentioned there, so also I'll say here, apparently uh, sexual harassment on the job, that's not a new phenomenon. Even back then, they had their harassment concerns. They had their hashtag Me Too concerns as well. And so the word here that Naomi uses, it can be translated as attack or harass. And so... Um, as I mentioned before, Boaz, he was very explicit. Don't do don't be harsh with her with reproach, rebuke, anything that would cause her to blush with embarrassment. Um uh, any any occasion of that would would be a violation of Boaz's command, but also a violation of Ruth herself. That's how it would have been viewed. So here though it seems Just based on the way Naomi explains it, she has graver concerns about the welfare of Ruth in the fields. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's
1: right. Um, You know, Boaz already gave the commands to all of his servants. Don't touch her. Don't insult her. It seems that Naomi's fears for Ruth uh, have to kind of center around. They seem to be centering around that, you know, Ruth is in danger of possibly being raped which tells you something about the time in which they lived, the dangers of the ancient world. And uh, Nick, you're right to talk about today as well. Even in our modern societies, there are still scores of sexual assaults. Uh, The weak and vulnerable are still preyed upon by evil men. And uh, perhaps we could take a note from the righteous Boaz here and find ways within our own power to set up safeguards for the weak and vulnerable, that's what Boaz does for Ruth, and I think church leaders today are especially able to do this by making good church safeguarding policies. Highly recommend the uh, safeguarding policy guide for churches and ministries. By uh, you can Google that. <laughs> I <can't> remember the <laughs> author's names, Baz Basil Chavigian. I don't know how to spell that though. <laughs> I know it starts with a T. Yes. (laughs) Well, Nick, um, we end chapter 2, the very last verse, 23, and it says Mm -hmm. that Ruth uh, worked in Boaz's field from harvest to harvest, from barley harvest to the wheat harvest. How long was that?
0: From what I can find, it's about six or seven weeks, um, from late April to early June by our calendar. Did you find anything else? Yeah,
1: this is how they figured out Pentecost. Pentecost Mm -hmm. is called the Feast of Weeks because it's a a week of weeks. That's what seven weeks is. Seven weeks, a week of weeks. That celebrated the uh, harvest of the wheat. Um, That came to be called Pentecost because of the 49 days. So celebrated on the 50th day there. It's after the barley harvest, right? So... As soon as they put that sickle to the grain for the barley harvest, they count off seven weeks, and boom, that's Pentecost and they're harvesting the wheat. Hmm, Nick, hmm, I'm thinking of some New Testament updates. The barley first fruits were indeed offered as a sheaf or wave offering uh, right after Passover, right around the same time Jesus was resurrected. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And then the church did begin... On the day of Pentecost, which would be the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Hmm. hmm. Very hmm. interesting. I think there might be something going on there, Nick. I am stroking my beard even as you talk. That's right. My long, white Chinese beard. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> I'm not Chinese. I don't have a beard. But, uh... <laughs> <clears throat> Nick, I think that brings us to our one-minute sermon.
0: Yeah, so this is the for season two. This is a new segment we introduced uh, last week. Sunday's coming, and Alex and I, were both preachers. We have a heart for preachers as well, and it can be tough to uh, <clears throat> week in and week out come up with the material that you need for your sermon. So we provide this as a service to those of you who will be in the pulpit this week. Uh, and also to your members, if you want to hear... Uh, a sermon from your preacher you can uh, you can take the the stuff we're gonna give you and then take it to them and uh, <laughs> here's how it works <clears throat> excuse me we will give Alex will give me I will give him a song title from any genre of music and then we have to come up with a sermon on the spot, sermon just a one-minute sermon, a text as well to be provided. And this will be the uh, well the first fruits of your sermon <laughs> preparation. So uh, do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first, Alex? Um, I don't know. You choose. You can go first. I think I went first last week. Yeah, you did. You went first last week. So you, you go, first go first this week. Okay. Yeah, here we go. Okay, All what's right. my saw? So I pulled this from that great crooner, Johnny Mathis. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> His song, the title is What Are You Doing The Rest of Your Life? What? what are you doing the rest of your life? How does the song go? I don't know. It's just it's just the title. <laughs> you run gonna, with the title and you have one or... <laughs> one minute. <laughs> text and sermon on your mark get set and go what are you doing
1: the rest of your life you know jesus often took his disciples through what we could call checkpoints seeing if they were really ready and willing to make a full commitment to following him to being his disciple And he gives a couple stories to illustrate this. He tells the story of a man who started building a tower, and he could not finish it. He didn't have the means necessary, and it became a laughingstock to all of those around him. A man who went out for war, and he was uh, sorely outnumbered. He should have gone out and made peace with his enemies. Jesus told these so that we would know that if we're going to commit to him, we need to be ready to serve him for the rest of our lives, from start to beginning, to be his disciples. That's one minute. Okay. My text was the Gospels. <laughs> <laughs> Luke 14, that's where you can find that parable. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> Somewhere, sometime, someone wrote that. <laughs> okay. That's the, uh, the best I got. Well, Nick, last week um, you gave me a song by Sting, Fields of Gold. As we walk the fields of gold. There I went, it is. I went and listened to it, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I have heard that song. I don't remember song titles very well. So there's another Sting song I really like that I thought you could preach on for us this week. Mm. Um, it's called Roxanne. So go ahead and give us a one-minute sermon <laughs> oh, <yeah>. on <laughs> Roxanne. By Sting, starting now.
0: I'm thinking of a woman whose name starts with R, named Rahab, who was the Roxanne of her day. Yes. <laughs> and she, she was a, a woman of the streets, a prostitute. But she chose solidarity with the God of Israel and with the people of Israel. This is Judges, uh, what, chapter 2? Uh, or is it Joshua, chapter 2? Joshua. Somewhere in there. And so because she chose solidarity with the people of Israel, with the God of Israel, God was faithful to her. And she ends up making, here's your New Testament update. She makes ends up making an appearance in the Gospels in Matthew chapter one. She is part of the lineage of Christ. Listen, God can use anyone from any background as long as they are willing to bow the knee to him and honor him as king in their life. This woman did, this Roxanne of her day, and now she ends up in the lineage of Christ. That's one minute. Well done, sir. Roxanne! Oh, man.
1: You don't have to put on a dress tonight.
0: Unreal. All right. That was one-minute sermons. Uh. You did good.
1: You did good. That was impressive. That was impressive. (laughs) No softballs this week. I thought you were going to go the uh, adulterous woman of John 8 route, but no, you brought it old school. You even found an R, an R letter (laughs)
0: name. That was extra impressive. Extra good. Uh, Any other final words about Ruth chapter 2, Alex? Nope. Stay
1: tuned for next week. We will cover Ruth chapter 3. Maybe Chapter 4, probably just Chapter 3. But be sure to um, send us any questions you might have, swordplaypodcast at swordplaypodcast.gmail.com, and repost this episode on your social media if you want. Give us a review on your favorite podcast app.
0: What else, Nick? You can search for us, yeah, the podcast in the iTunes Store, in the uh, Google... Google Play Music. There it is, Google Play Music Store. I was get that one confused. Uh, you'll find us on there. And download all the episodes to your particular device. You can also um, leave a review, and that will help us get the word out about the program as well.
1: All right. Well, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time on another episode of Swordplay.